Well, let me invite you to turn to Psalm 54 as we continue to march through the Psalms. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men to seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, that it is inspired, that the Holy Spirit has poured it out through David of old, this particular portion, we pray uh, that you would encourage our hearts and lives with it. Help us to hear, and may our souls sing as well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, prayers come in different sizes and shapes. Some come in that little moment of frustration where you look up to the heavens and you say, Lord, help! And others come at the end of of a very long and frustrating day. Lord, how long? But some prayers come in the clutch, in a moment of danger, in a time when the shadow of death potentially falls across our face, when the stakes are most high, and that is serious stuff of which Psalm 54 is made. As we turn to this psalm together, as we hear the voice of David sing, we with him reach for the faithfulness of God. The psalm is where David cries out to God. But we don't start with verse 1. We start with the little uh, heading at the top, the little caliphant section that says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Uh, this is a reference back to what later is recorded in 1 Samuel uh, 23, verses 19 and following. And the main characters are very familiar to us. First of all, there's Saul. You know Saul. The children of Israel demanded to have a king, just like the nations. They, they were not satisfied with God's arrangement to rule them through the judges. And so they chose the handsome reprobate, chosen by man, but ultimately rejected by God. And then the second major player, David, the youngest, the one who tended sheep, the one who was the least likely for men to choose as the leader of their nation. But he was anointed by God through instruction to his prophet. He was the true heir apparent to the throne. 
And then there was Jonathan, the man, the son, the prince who abdicated, as it were, because of love for God and his word and a covenant that he felt constrained by the hand of God to make with David. Oh, the the main characters are familiar to us and the plot is also no surprise. Saul was filled with evil paranoia. His, his times of clarity seemed to have come and gone. His mind became fixated in fear and trembling over David being a rival to his throne. And so he sought to take David's life. David, however, trusted in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord's word and in his covenant. And he also trusted in the providence of God which is not an easy thing for us to do. Trusting God as we go along the road of life step by step. David did that. And so David, rather than fighting Saul, fled. Fled his presence. Did not lift up his hand against him. But that does not mean David was a wimp. He was not afraid to fight. He he knew he had a responsibility to defend himself. But he rightly refused to lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed king. This was Israel. He was a son of Israel. This was his nation. Saul was his king. Even when Saul was most wicked towards him, he still recognized the office and the crown that was on his head. David let God work in his good time and way that his holy will might be done. After he fled on this occasion, he he ate showbread. He he was given Goliath's sword to defend himself with. And he ran all the way to the wilderness, all the way to the mountains at the edge of the Red Sea because his life was in real danger. But Saul ended up pursuing him. He discovered where he was by some intelligence that was slipped to him. And he went in hot pursuit. Ziphites told Saul where David was hiding. Now, who are these Ziphites? You know, my wife asked me that today. Who are these Ziphites? I said, well, you come to the sermon, you'll hear. (laughs) Our best guess is they lived about 30 miles south of Jerusalem, over towards the Red Sea in the mountainous or hill country there. And... What's interesting in the original text is the reference made to them, although it's not reflected in our English translation, uh, there's no definite article. It doesn't say these Ziphites. It just says Ziphites. You know, sort of like termites or mosquitoes. We, we don't say the mosquitoes. We just say mosquitoes, and we bat them out of the way. Pesky little Ziphites are the reason this psalm was sung. David found himself in immediate danger. He was on one side of a mountain hiding, probably in a cave or a crevice. And Saul was gathering on the other side and marching around to come get him. There was no normal human way of escape. David was trapped. The routes of exit were cut off. He was doomed. And so what did David do? He did the right thing. He cried out to the Lord. 
We hear him pray, Oh God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. What's interesting is that when David cries out and asks God to save him, we see in the psalm he uses God's Semitic name and God's Jewish name. He uses the name of God, the root of which means power and might, which is definitely what he needed. But he also uses the name of God that means the covenant God, the God full of loving kindness and mercy, which David also desperately needed at this moment. Save me, he says. David's life is in real danger. If God does not pull him as a brand out from the fire, he will be consumed and he will die there in the wilderness. Vindicate me, he says. Vindicate me by your might. And this language is a little different. It's not that he just wants God to save him. It's that he's appealing to God to save him because his cause is just. Because his cause is right. Yes, he's a sinner. Yes, he's one who has disobeyed the Ten Commandments. And we know that down the line he is going to disappoint the Lord and the Lord's people and and be the cause of bringing judgment upon them in a very heartbreaking way. How can David ask God in prayer to vindicate him in the same moment that he's asking him to save him? Because his cause at that moment was right and he appeals to the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God to rescue him. Hear me, O Lord. Hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth, he says. And then in the third verse, he outlines in summary fashion the fix he's in. Strangers have arisen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Here, in facing his problem in prayer, David pauses with a little shelah and makes us pause as well in our singing and ruminate and weigh those words. Strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. David sees... That in his situation there is evil and there is good. And evil ones are out to get him. And he calls upon God who is not just theoretical but also very practical, very mighty and able to rescue him from them. From those that seek to kill him. And do not ultimately fear the Lord as David by his grace does. Saul is acting according to his nature. David is acting according to his new nature as he is born again in the Messiah to come, his greater son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But David just doesn't cry out to God for help. He also testifies in prayer. This is a very interesting aspect of prayer. Sometimes we are tempted to think that prayer is sort of like the shopping list. Now, Lord, I need this, and Lord, I need that, and Lord, I need something else. Here David is showing us that there's more to prayer than just that. He is affirming or testifying through his song that God is his helper. And he stamps his foot and raises his finger that we might see and hear the importance of his testimony. Behold, he says, behold, God is my helper. The Lord 
is the upholder of my life. David here is reminding God, reminding himself, and reminding all of us of that active, ongoing, personal relationship that he has with God. God is not some entity tucked up in the far corner of the universe. He's not some sentimental feeling that his father and his mother and his grandmother and grandfather before him had. He is the real and true and living God. He is the one who is involved in history. He is the master of providence. He is the one who upholds David's life, whether it's a bear, whether it's a lion, whether it's Goliath, or even whether it's Saul himself. God, God upholds him. And then in the fifth verse, we read something that maybe startles us. We hear him singing in a minor key, in heavy and dark tone. He, God, will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. God will get them, he says. Sick them, Lord. Turn the tables. They're trying to kill me. Kill them is what the Lord is implying through his prophet. Now, perhaps that causes us some trouble. Maybe maybe you're a little like the Jehovah's Witness guy that came and knocked on my door. You know, he told me yesterday, we knock on doors just like Jesus did. I said, really? Oh, yes, Jesus knocked on doors and he, he sent his disciples out to knock on doors. Really, I said. He said, oh, yes, in the book of Acts, it says they went from house to house. And I leaned over and I said, yes, they went from one living room to another living room and taught the word of God to villages and to neighborhoods and to to those in the city that would gather. They didn't go and knock on doors just like you do. He didn't know his Bible very well. Here, here we have the language of an imprecatory strain in the psalm. God's judgment, the shadow of his hand of judgment and the end times falling across the face of Saul and his minions. David is right to diagnose his situation that he is with God and Saul is against him, that he is the instrument through whom the will and covenant and purpose of God will move forward, and that Saul is seeking at the behest and stirring up of the devil to undo it. All of redemptive history hangs in the balance. And so David rightly speaks in sober and serious terms about God being the one who is fighting his enemy and that God will ultimately win by their defeat. And the Lord keeps his promises. The Lord is one who doesn't fall short but rather delivers on that which he covenants. David takes that fact deeply into his own heart and he glories and rejoices in light of the promised deliverance that the covenant God must accomplish. With a free will offering, he says in verse 6, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Here is David in his cave, in his crevice, seeing 
that God will deliver him. Exercising with the eyes of faith, confidence in the Lord. And he's looking forward and longing to go and give a sacrifice to the Lord and to praise his name in front of the people of God. David sings well as he goes from a minor key to a glorious height. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. He tells us, I have seen the victory of the Lord. And boy, did he. Looking out that little cave. What did David see? Saul's army and and people gathering to, to do him harm. He was trapped and there was no way of escape. And then a trumpet sound. And they all ride off because the Philistines had attacked at the border. And Saul had a first responsibility to defend his people and his country rather than to go after David. Saul had to run away. David saw the deliverance of the Lord. We need to understand that in his little situation, from the portal of that little cave, this was as dramatic as God parting the Red Sea. He did not understand what had happened, but surely was thankful that the covenant God had been faithful to His Word and He did not perish. So the promised Messiah... David's greater son, the very son of God incarnate, was then able to come down that blessed line. He came and lived and died for our sins. And in God winning for David, we won too. Great and mighty is the Lord. But wait a minute. This psalm is also messianic. David is not the only one to ever sing it. The one whom David foreshadowed, his greater son to come, he also took these words upon his lips. He sang in the tabernacle. He sang among the people of God, even uh, in the synagogue. And so Jesus also cried out to his heavenly father. His life was endangered. Now, the record of the historical context in which that happened is not given to us at the little heading here above verse 1. We have the fullness of the Gospels telling us about his experience. It's easy to sum up. David had his Ziphites. Jesus had Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Roman governor after him. But with all of the opposition that David faced, none was more bitter, none was more heartbreaking than that of Judas, his own disciple, almost family, who betrayed him to the cross. You see, the Ziphites, they were Jews. The Ziphites, they were Jews of the tribe of Judah. The Ziphites, they were David's cousins, his kith and kin. And not only did they have a responsibility to hold out natural justice to him, because everyone could see that Saul at times was out of his mind 
and commanding them to do immoral and horrible things. Word had spread about the slaughter of the priests in the chapter before. Oh, they all knew how wicked and evil Saul was. These Ziphites who went and betrayed David, their own kith and kin, to a wicked and evil and rebellious king, they they were a great heartbreak to David, king of the Jews. But Judas... Judas owed to the real king of the Jews everything. He owed him life. He owed him breath. He owed him strength. He owed him trust, loyalty, hope of heaven. Judas betrayed it all in betraying Christ our Lord. And with the shadow of pain and suffering and heartache falling across his face, Jesus took this psalm upon his lips. Uh, Perhaps even as a child, as he sang this with the people of God and with his own family, it began to grow and to dawn on him as a youngster that this was about him and about his calling and about his fate. Did he not call Judas to him? Did he not command Judas to go do it quickly? Oh, Jesus knew. He had cried out this song in prayer to his heavenly Father as that shadow had fallen progressively upon his face. He prayed, Save me, O Father! And what irony! Save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might that the Savior would need saving what strange language we find here. But he needed vindication in this sense that he who knew no sin was being accused of such, that he who was not guilty was being declared guilty, that he who had never broken the law of God found himself being accused with breaking the greatest in all the law of God. Hear me, he cries out. See what I'm faced with. The heavy shadow of the cross fell across his face as he sang this psalm. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Oh, he testifies as to his situation to his heavenly Father in prayer. And we have echoes of Psalm 22 with the bulls of Bashan gathered round as his hands are spread out, as he is crucified, as his clothes are divided, as he finds himself with no help save in God. But yet, just like in Psalm 22, from the shadow of darkness, the light breaks forth in his mind and heart. We go from a minor key to a major one, but we feel the tempo pick up. We hear Jesus sing of the glorious victory to come, that God is His helper, that God will uphold His life, that He will not be snuffed out and annihilated. There is resurrection light, and He points to it in verses 4 and 5. The upholder of His life will vindicate Him. He saw the light at the end of the tunnel. 
And so he rejoices in the goodness of his God. For the joy set before him, after darkness, light and power and glory will be revealed through and after his sufferings. And so God the Father hears his prayer. Oh God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. And God the Father answers the Son of His covenant love with the most amazing, thunderous no. No, He says. You must drink from this cup. No, it may not pass from you. You must drink it to the dregs. In His human will, the incarnate Son of God recoiled from pain and suffering as any normal human being would. And so in the garden, He looks up to heaven and with drops of sweat like blood falling from His face, He prays and asks God to deliver Him if there's any way. And the answer is the same. No. You must drink it. You must drink it all. David escaped. Jesus would not. He was crucified, dead and buried. He went through all of that for you and for me, believer. And so all the others, the believers who have sung this psalm, they too have cried out, to God. You see, her life is in danger. The believing one. That believing woman, her life is in danger. She is asked to be, in a, to be vulnerable in a hostile and fallen world. She is asked by God to be patient and long-suffering at the cost of real loss and sacrifice. She is asked to love her husband through the means of humiliation, being subject to him as family head, rather than being in charge herself. In God's strange providence, the believing woman finds herself repeatedly faced with impossible situations and unbearable tasks. She has too much work, too many meals, Too many children, too little understanding from others in her home, too much loneliness and isolation. The believing woman is in a real fix. Now, maybe as you measure prayers, her situation and her prayer in response to it, as God puts this prayer upon her lips, maybe it's not so large, but you know, with the incarnation and with the atonement and with the resurrection, all the world is changed. God turns all the world upside down. In your life today, the big questions are not, what job will I take? Or what person will I marry? Yes, those are important and God in His providence and His Word will lead and guide you. But it's the little things, those little choices, those daily things that you face, they become of enormous spiritual importance for you. What is she to do? 
She is to cry out to God just like David and just like her Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. She is to cry out and ask God to save her, to vindicate her and her cause of righteousness in Christ. She has asked God to she is to ask God to hear her prayer, to hear the words of her mouth, to see the situation in which she lives, to answer her yea and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. In prayer she testifies to God and to us and to herself that God is her helper. That God can help her face the day. That God is the one who upholds her no matter what difficulties of of illness or, or of temptation come her way. And she affirms along with David that God will win the victory, that He will defeat all of His and her enemies, even those annoying and stupid and backwards and even evil things that crop up in the family, in the church, in the world. She cries out to Him because He is able to answer. And she glories. Just like in verses 6 and 7, she longs to sacrifice to His glory. She's eager to give thanks and praise to His name. Like a laser, she focuses not upon all the little things in her life which annoy her, but she focuses upon Christ and all that He is and all that He has done and all that He is doing even through her in those little things. By singing this psalm, she says, along with the Apostle Paul, have this mind or attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. She learns to follow Paul's admonition, to present her body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. She learns to sing and live. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as the focus and heartbeat of her life. That is the way she, that is the way you and I, we all, are to live to the glory of God. And the good news is, is that God will keep His covenant with you too. That God will not let life be trivial. That He will fill your life, even in and through the most overlooked things, with eternal purpose, with gospel meaning lived out, with kingdom use. You'll never have a dull moment. He will always be at your side. He promises, does He not? I will never leave you or forsake you. You will be able to do all things, all His holy will, through Christ who strengthens you. And when He comes again, He will call you forth and He will say to you face to face, 
Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So you must say, right now, pesky Ziphites, be gone. I will follow Jesus. Let us pray.